Hi, and thank you for listening to Next Level Medical Assisting. Uh, This podcast is all about medical assisting and how we can be better, more efficient, and more patient-oriented. It will be positive and supportive, bringing together medical assistants and other clinical staff to be able to lightheartedly discuss medical assisting and related areas while exchanging ideas for how to be a better MA, such as compassion, detail-orientedness, staying professional, avoiding complacency, etc. There will be no politics or controversial topics here. Now for the legal stuff, the views and opinions stored and shared in this podcast are my own and are not endorsed by or representative of my employer. In addition, I am not a licensed medical professional approved to give medical advice. The information in this podcast is not in any way intended to be medical advice. Always seek the help of your physician or another qualified medical professional for any medical questions or concerns. Hello and welcome back to Next Level Medical Assisting. Thank you very much. I'm Zach. I'm your host here. Uh, this is season one, episode nine, uh, tips for rooming a patient. And so just a quick note here, uh, the specific process for rooming patients can vary significantly depending on the clinic that you work in and what specialty you work in. Um, some of the tips in this episode Uh, might not apply to certain departments or say urgent care, but some of them will. And and ultimately I'll be looking for your feedback. And if there's uh, something that you do and where you work or, or or, uh, where you work or the department that you work in that might do something different or in addition to what we discussed in this episode. So as medical assistants, rooming a patient is more or less the core of what we do. The exact process can vary depending on what department you work in, uh, as well as what clinic you work in, as we mentioned, but the general concept is the same. You room the patient, you take the vitals, document the social history, review the medication list, and document the sum of the patient's concern in the chief complaint. So just a brief summary of what we do as part of the rooming process. Obviously, there's lots of things that can vary in between, but that's generally the, the the gist of what we do is part of that. The process really starts when we are first notified that the patient has checked in. Ideally, we would have already previewed the schedule and have an idea of why this patient is coming in, as well as have prepared anything that might be needed, such as a printout of the vaccine history and needed back immunizations or set up for a pap smear if a woman is coming in for an annual visit and they appear to be due or set up for, say, a rectal exam for a patient coming in with rectal concerns or whatever it may whatever may be appropriate for that visit or the reason that they're coming in. Sometimes something is necessary to prepare. Uh, sometimes something is not necessary to prepare or something may pop up later. It is important to note here that we should prepare and set up based on available knowledge and on a calculated guess that a certain procedure will be done. There's no guarantee it will be done. It's very possible that the expected procedure is not going to be done, but it's better to be prepared and have to put the supplies away later than to have to assemble all the supplies at the last minute while the provider waits, and even worse if the patient's undressed or anything like that. It just is more of an inconvenience for everybody, uh, and not to mention takes more time you know, out of your day that you may or may not have. You can always put the supplies away later uh, when you're not busy or when you have free time. And so this this should be done within reason, though, Uh, and if possible, you know, consult with the provider before they go in the room if you should set up for something if you're really not sure. Uh, Generally, if a woman is, according to what I can see in the chart, if they're due for a pap and they haven't had a, say, a total hysterectomy, um, then 
you know, I, I likely would go ahead and set up for it. And, you know, sometimes they may not get it for whatever reason. Maybe they're on their cycle, maybe, and, and the provider doesn't want to do it that way. Maybe they have had one that was done elsewhere or whatever the reason. Uh, it might not be done, but that's okay. We, we set up for it. We do our best to prepare uh, the room and the provider and the patient for what might happen to within reason. We don't want to go above, you know, we, we don't want to go too far and set up for a bunch of stuff that, you know, likely isn't going to happen. This also highlights the importance of reviewing your next day's schedule uh, at the end of every shift. Uh, this is something that I honestly didn't used to do regularly until until recently, um, and I've I've always known the benefit of it. But it, to me, it just felt like you know why do I need to review the chart? You know, the providers going to go in there and shock with them and, and see what their what their you know history is and what needs to be done. But as of actually recently, after so many years. I've, you know, realized the significance of it and the importance of it of being able to be prepared and, you know, set up and anything for, for anything that might be needed. And, you know, so the, cause the provider is going to do their own review, but, you know, you're looking for some things that may or may not be the same, uh, but you know, that might pertain to you as DMA that if you can go let the provider know, Hey, I already know about this, that saves them from having the related information or chat with you about it. If you can cover it with the patient. <clears throat> Uh, you know, some things that DMA should be looking for would include any related uh, related previous diagnoses or visits related to why they are coming in the next day, any preventative care items that are due, such as, say, vaccine updates or, as discussed, like a, a most recent pap smear when their last colon health screen was, whether it be a colonoscopy or cologuard or an FOBT or FIT test. Uh, you know, when their last mammogram was, when their last fasting labs were, if they're due for cholesterol labs or whatever it may be, it's just a good idea. I mean, it may or may not be pertinent to why they're coming in, but it's a good idea to know a lot of this stuff uh, that is maintenance can be done even on visits that are there for acute reasons, uh, you know, as long as it doesn't, um, as long as it doesn't have a negative impact on why they're there or be too much of an inconvenience. So we do all that and then the day comes and your first patient checks in. So we're gonna sort of walk through this process here where uh, basically we'll go through one patient, the first patient of the day. It's it's very rough, uh, it's it's very general. Um, we're not, you know, going into too much detail here as far as like, you know, what they're coming in for, what would happen exactly be done in certain specialties or certain departments. I'm in primary care and so the general overall idea here is that it's a primary care patient. Uh, but it, you know, the overall concept could be could be applied really to any department, just with some variances. And so ideally the 15 uh, patient would check in 15 minutes early. But you know what, realistically, they're probably either gonna check in exactly at the appointment time or even a little bit late. At least that's been my experience. And I don't mean that in a sarcastic or condescending way. I mean that it's reality, you know? I mean, in a perfect world, patients should check in 15 minutes early. Some places want them to check in 30 minutes early if they're, say, new patients or there for, for physicals or annuals. But the fact of the matter is, at least in my experience, most patients are going to check in either just before, right at, or even a little bit after their appointment time. You know, and we, we do our best to try to prevent that and let them know I have yet to see a perfect system for it. So if somebody has a recommendation for a perfect system, I would I would love to hear it and I'd be happy to pass it along to, to my superiors here to see what we can do. One thing that I want to point out is that even if a patient checks in late, 
whether it's a few minutes or even much longer, it is not our intent or approach to punish them for doing that. I've worked in clinics that have had as short a late check-in window as 10 minutes and as long as the entire day. We want to do everything in our power to accommodate them and give them the benefit of the doubt. Ultimately, the provider will have the final say, but even but even if they decline to see them, we as DMA should ensure to communicate kindly and courteously to the patient and inquire to see if there's anything we can do for them in the meantime until their next appointment. We are not rescheduling them because we don't want to see them. We are doing so in order to best abide by our schedule and ensure no unnecessary delays for other patients that day, as well as making sure that we have the appropriate amount of time to address that patient's concerns during their visit so we're not rushing through it. You know, again, this can vary wildly. I've I've worked at a lot of different places that approach this very differently. Uh, and just, you know, whatever your clinic's uh, policies are and whatever your provider's preferences are, just abide by that. The most important thing is to communicate it in a kind and courteous way. And, and even if I literally will tell patients sometimes this is by no means uh, intended to be a punishment. You know, we're, we're doing our best to accommodate everybody. We're happy to accommodate you to the best we can. Um, but if, you know, if their appointment is too late or if it's already over, then, you know, unfortunately you're taking somebody else's time. Some clinics allow for that and allow patients to be checked in very late. And so just whatever your policies are, but the communication should always be in a polite manner, speaking to the patients. I, a lot of times it can be, feel like it's us versus them. Uh, and it's really not the case. You know, we want to do our best to help them. We don't know what they've been through. Some patients are just being irresponsible is showing up late, but others have, you know, a good excuse or a good reason. And it's not our place to judge. We just we give them the benefit of the doubt and do our best to accommodate them. So after that, uh, the patient is checked in and I, again, either early or on time or late. Now we have to call them back from the waiting room. As easy as this may seem, it can present several challenges, actually. Uh, first would be the patient's names. So pretty much anywhere you work, at some point you will encounter patients from different cultures or countries or ethnicities that at one point or another will have a name you are not familiar with how to pronounce. I've seen other MAs or staff take different approaches to this challenge, uh, some more appropriate than others. But I'm a big believer that we should do our best to pronounce the name as we believe it is intended. And then when the patient is walking towards us to openly ask them if we said the name correctly, and if not, what is the correct way to do so? I like to do this in a, you know, not, not super loud, but not too quiet way. I like to acknowledge in front of anybody else who may be listening that, you know, I, that I, if I said your name wrong, I want to know so I can correct it. And I'm, I'm not secret about that, that, you know, your name is important uh, and how it's be said and what you want to be called, whether that's the name on the paper or something else. And so it's important for me to get that correct. And I need to be humble enough to correct myself in front of other people. So if anything else, I, you know, I'm the guy in the hot seat instead of the patient um, who may be, you know, viewed differently because the name was said wrong or, or something like that, or even they just may feel that way, even though if that's not the case. And so I like to do that in, uh, you know, as openly as possible. Uh, a related component to this is to check to see if they have a nickname or preferred name that should be used. Uh, this could be a patient with a difficult to pronounce name that prefers a nickname uh, that they find more suitable for them. Or it could say be a transgender patient who has a uh, preferred name that is more suitable for their gender identity other than the birth name that is currently on the form. 
very importantly though we should not use an abbreviated name simply for our preference it should only be done if it's what the patient prefers it can be tempting sometimes you see somebody with a difficult name and you see an easy way to abbreviate it to want to go ahead and do that that should not be the case and we should not do that uh, not without their permission and so sometimes patients will even tell me, you know, that it's okay to call them something else. And I'll make a point of telling them, you know, is that what you want? Is that what you would like to be called? If not, I want to learn how to pronounce your name. And as many times as I get it wrong, I want you to correct me because it's important. That's your name. I want somebody to call me by my name. I want to call you by your name. It's not their job to change their name if they don't want to. It's my job to learn how to pronounce their name. Another factor to this is when a new MA graduates and starts in the field, <clears throat> there's a level of nervousness, which is completely normal, but it can cause them to be very reluctant to say any names too loud for fear of, say, standing out or drawing attention in the waiting room. You know, all of a sudden everybody turns to look at you and you're already kind of not so confident in what you're doing. Um, but that's, you know, it's important to remember that is our goal is to draw the attention and to get the person's attention so they know we are calling them. That's the whole idea there. Uh, and it's, you know, it seems like such a simple thing, but it's important because ironically, if you don't say it loud enough, you're going to get more people's attention thinking you're calling their name because you're not saying it loudly or clearly enough. So the idea is to say it as clearly uh, and as loud as necessary. Um, so the person who you're actually intending to call, hears what you have to say and stands up. And so the next thing is is very important. It is not appropriate to call patients by their last name. This is actually a violation of HIPAA to do so. And it is if it is absolutely necessary to be used, such as say two patients stand up with that when they respond to the same first name, uh, the proper way to do so would be to ask them what their last names are so they can state it to you in a volume that they deem is appropriate and if they don't they can say it to you in private but it's ultimately up to them to make that decision how loud to say it uh and and whether or not to say it you know in the waiting room um, so it's you know I, less less uh less ideal would be asking for the date of birth you know i think it's not a surprise that a lot of people don't want to state their date of birth out loud in the waiting room um, and so, you know, to ask that and then if necessary, pull them aside and ask them politely just to make sure that you have the right patient. And so in the past for myself, I've actually taken them, I'll, I'll, if somebody stands up, I'll take them back to the room, even if I'm not sure if it's the right one and I correct that I ask them the last name and date of birth in the room. And if it happens to be the wrong patient, that's okay. I've gotten their weights, but I haven't done much more than that. And so I just walked them back out. You know, the system worked. I caught the mistake and I bring the correct patient back to the room. So that's that's the way that's the that's the way that the system is supposed to work. So after you get the patient to the back office, usually the next step is to take their weight. Uh, at some clinics, this is done at a scale in the hallway. This is pretty visible to anybody walking by. Other clinics have them in each exam room uh, and others may have a separate private area to do this. So most important for this is to do your best to ensure other staff, excuse me, other staff and patients do not get a view of the weight and definitely do not say the weight out loud unless the patient specifically asks you. And even then be sure to say it discreetly. So the whole idea here is just giving them their privacy, you know, and if they say, hey, what was my weight? 
just as a common courtesy, you don't want to just blurt it out loud necessarily. I mean, other people might be standing around, you know, even if they may not be em embarrassed about it or whatnot, it's just common courtesy. You just don't do that. And so you, you don't have to necessarily whisper right into their ear, but you just say it, you know, in a, in a calm, discreet tone and let them know. And, you know, I make, I make a point of whether the scale reads in kilograms or pounds unless the patient specifically asked me what the weight was i don't usually tell them as a large portion of the patients that i've encountered including myself would prefer not to know what the scale says for a variety of different reasons you know my personal reasons are i weigh myself on a certain scale not even just at a place i don't have one at home i have one at work that i weigh on and it's not just any scale it's a specific scale uh, so when I go to the doctor, you know, I let them weigh me, but I tell them, I don't want to know. I don't want to know what my weight is. You know, I have a system for that. Uh, and I, you know, I know they have a job to do, so I do that, but I let them know that I don't want to know what it is. So I give other patients that courtesy as well, because I know how it feels. And believe it or not, more people than you would think would actually prefer this. They, so I make a point of asking them, our scale reads in kilograms. And they say, would you like to know this in pounds? And, you know, I, I, unless they tell me, yes, I don't say anything. You know, because more often than not, they're like, yeah, no, I'd rather not know. And I totally understand that because I, I feel similar. And so if the patient is elderly or otherwise unstable, uh, it's always you always want to be sure to let them know to take their time and to only do it if it can be done safely. Now, this can be particularly annoying when a patient is late or when you're running behind for other reasons. You know they're going slower or whatnot but the safety and the service to the patient needs to take precedence at your clinic always so you you know if somebody if you're running behind and they're you know being slow about getting their weight or they're elderly obviously you know the last thing you want them to do is get hurt or injured or fall down and so as hard as it can be to slow down and let them take their weight safely and appropriately it's important to do so the provider likely is going to want it and they're going to understand if something is taking an unreasonable amount of time you know uh, sometimes it is okay to actually say you know what let's go ahead and get this on the way out or or straight up just bypass it altogether if they say it had been there recently or whatnot and so you know, just let the provider know what's happening, um, but you don't want to rush the patient. That's very important. And so if needed, you should offer your hand or your arm to balance for them to balance on or otherwise assist them, but make very sure not to help them without asking if they would like your assistance unless they appear to be in imminent danger and do not offer your arm if you are not confident you would be able to support them if they fell. So, you know, by putting your arm out or whatever it may be that they're they're resting on, the assumption there is, is that you're going to be able to hold them if they fall or you're going to support them if they fall. If you can't do that for whatever reason or if you're not confident, then don't offer it. Suggest something else, a handlebar for something to hold on to. Most clinics, almost all of them will have some sort of handlebar for patients to hold on to or, or some other way to support them. Um, but don't offer the assistance if you're not able to. To, to, to hold them up if they were to fall because it would just make the situation worse. If the patient cannot do it safely, take their weight, then bypass it and room the patient and let the provider know why the weight wasn't taken. You know, it's okay. And then if the provider insists on having it taken, then it can be done again, but with the right amount of assistance and precautions that are necessary for it to be done safely, whether that's after the visit say during the visit I've had providers actually assist me themselves or maybe you have them sit in a wheelchair if you have a wheelchair scale that you can unfold to have them sit in a wheelchair 
but the most important thing is that it's done safely and you know appropriately so the patient doesn't get injured in the process that's obviously the last thing we want for them to happen now after after the weight usually comes the height in my experience height is is only taken in primary care when somebody is a new patient or a pediatric patient under the age of 18 or a yearly physical for an adult um, when i was in urgent care weight and height were actually only really taken in pediatric patients unless their concern was directly weight related. This is because some of the medications that we had were, were dosed based on, on weight for pediatric patients or at least smaller children or, or you know, uh, maybe tweens to younger. Um, but we would usually get it on everybody under 18. Other than that, unless the, the visit was specifically weight related or potentially weight related, weight didn't didn't wasn't necessarily a high priority because it wasn't going to really change what we did that day um, even if we were giving medication for adults you're you're at least most of the medications that we were giving in urgent care were not dosed based on weight for adults for anybody over the age of 18 if not even a little younger and so <clears throat> for that we would just ask them um, what it was um, unless they requested or unless we felt that it was otherwise appropriate Fun fact, uh, for those of you that are not aware of this, the device that measures a person's height is called a statiometer. Uh, it is, I, I know it's funny to think that people wouldn't know that, uh, but I am, I am always shocked to see how few people know the proper name of this device, whether it be another MA, a provider, a patient, or somebody else, probably because the exact name of the device isn't particularly important. Uh, to what we're doing, you know, a scale is a scale, you know, and it's like, oh, let's go measure your height. But what's that thing called again? You know, you don't really think about what it's called. Uh, so it's kind of a kind of a fun fact that I use as a lighthearted moment sometimes. Um, whether it be with patients or coworkers or whatnot, or even providers, believe it or not, because they're so thinking about other other things. And so after we get the height and weight, we uh, usually will have the patient sit in the exam room and we begin the computer intake process and the vitals. It is possible some people are still using paper. I, you know, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm not exposed as far as other clinic or other states and how that goes or even other countries. But I know at least where I am, it's pretty unusual for somebody to still be on um, at least primarily paper. Um, it's 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 pretty uncommon for that. Even the smaller clinics have a lot of incentive and funding to get the electronic medical records and have computers to do this. So the specific order that this is done as far as vitals and intake process ultimately is dependent on the clinic that you work at, the EMR or electronic medical record you're using, as well as your own preferences. In general, I usually do the computer intake part first, including uh, you know, social history, medication review, and anything else that may be needed, uh, then I do chief complaint and, and vitals as last. So I find this to be helpful and that it gives the patient time to relax prior to taking vitals, although it can also increase the blood pressure if the topic of discussion is emotional or otherwise bothersome to the patient. So it's not a perfect system and, you know, it, it's not ideal, but in my in my experience it's it's been the the better of the of the poisons to choose is very a very important part of the very excuse me a very important part of this intake is the medication list review so this is something that i think a lot of ma's actually 
don't particularly enjoy and do find to be can be very time consuming, including myself. It's very time consuming to do this, uh, particularly if somebody has a very long list of medications. And so, but it's such a critical part of the patient's treatment and care plan that we should absolutely be addressing it in detail and ensuring accurate reconciliation. So, you know, this is something that we have to do for pretty much every patient. It can become very monotonous. A common response of patients is nothing's changed. Uh, more often than not, when they say that, it's not necessarily true. They don't know what's on that list. They don't know what's been taken off or added on. A dose could have changed. A strength could have changed. A complete prescription could have changed. And so more often than not, you know, usually what I'll tell them is, you know, I, oh, I, okay, I totally understand. Nothing's changed. You know, unfortunately, I still need to go through the list and I'll go through just yes or no, whether or not you're taking these medications. Uh, and we still go through it. And so over the years, I've developed... Uh, ways to do this while minimizing the amount of time it takes to do so. Ironically, or not so ironically, the patients taking the most medications are usually the patients that tend to talk the most, which makes the process even more difficult and time consuming. So that's not always the case, but sometimes it can be. Some medications actually can have that effect on people if somebody take, just taking a decent dose of steroids it can make them more talkative somebody who is on you know stimulant medication or somebody who's not on stimulant medication and should be or some people just have that personality that they they tend to to talk a lot and you know what that's okay it's part of what we do there's the people that do that i've been told i talk a lot too some sometimes and there's nothing wrong with that it's just something that we got to work with um, as part of our intake process so some tips that I've learned to help with this are, the first one would be prior to starting the review, I verbally let the patient know, I'm going to review your medications now, please let me know yes or no if you are taking them at all. So the idea is that this helps with the issue when patients are on in, say PRN or as needed medication and they may say they are not taking it or clarify that they take it as needed uh, and you know it helps them under the idea is that they're taking it at some interval and that it's as needed, which is as directed. More often than not, they don't actually get that and it doesn't actually work, but I think it's worth the effort. Sometimes it does work. Uh, and so I usually do that uh, for the most part. Um, if, a, if a specific drug has already been mentioned as part of the intake process for any reason, I will usually word it as as if you know we've already discussed this medication and it sounds like you are still taking this and so this would be like say somebody says i'm here to follow up on my levothyroxine or, or or whatever it is if they mention a specific medication i do pause for a brief moment to give them a chance to clarify if anything has changed or if i was mistaken um, but usually you've if you've mentioned it you may or may not have gone over in discussion the dose and whatnot and they would have let you know if they've stopped taking it or changed it um, you still want to give them a chance to correct you but you know this is something if they say hey i'm here to follow up my my levothyroxine i've been taking 125 micrograms for however long you know and i just need a refill and i just ask them quickly oh you know have you run out or, or anything like that and then when you get to that on the list for the most part you know it's just a duplicate when you're going over it and so occasionally very occasionally I will use leading questions such as uh, you're still taking this medication is that correct it's very important to note here that this is not best practice and if it is used then it's very important to keep an eye and an ear out in case the patient gives a subtle sign that something has changed in general I'm not the person to recommend uh, leading questions 
uh, because it obviously will um, it, it heavily influences the patient to give you just a standard response or respond to what they think you're expecting. So I would be very cautious when doing this in any way, shape or form. Uh, I really only do this, say, if I, I know a patient pretty well or I know they've been taking something or it's been recently discussed or it's come through as a message or as a refill. Um, and even then, I'm very keen to keep an eye and an ear out to see if there's any uh, subtle clues that maybe I'm mistaken or maybe they're not taking it or if they're not, I think they're not listening to me, I'll, I'll clarify it in more detail. And so, as, as noted, importantly, I only use this on techniques that I have a very good reason to believe they are still taking. Um, if, if you're ever unsure whether it's okay to use the leading question technique, then it probably isn't. And it's just very important. So if, if you don't know whether or not you should, then you probably shouldn't. So different providers will value the medical assistance medication review process differently. So some providers depend on it for an accurate reconciliation. Uh, others will do their own reconciliation with the patient, uh, regardless of whether or not you have done yours. And others are less concerned with an accurate documented med list, you know, although this is definitely not the way it should be, and it does leave room for medication treatment errors. I have unfortunately come across providers who are really not so interested in reconciling the med list, even though it really should be done. It's very important. They just kind of assume that, that what's on the list is accurate, and they just kind of deal with it as, it, as they come across it but it does leave a very high risk and room for errors and should not be treated that way. But regardless of how the provider view or values our reconciliation of the med list, it should not change how we do our job. It doesn't change how we see it or how we do it. We do it because it's important and whether or not the, what the provider does with that information is entirely up to them, but it doesn't change how we do it and how detailed we are in it and how accurate we are in it. We still want to do our job. It affects not only that visit, it can affect future visits when the patients say, oh, nothing's changed. I was just at say this specialty in the same system. They're expecting that their medication changes have been addressed and we should, we should do so, even though for the most part, MAs are not allowed to actually cancel medications. We can propose them or at the very least mark that they're not taking them. So the next bump we run into at some point is how to pronounce medication names. We all know that medications have a generic name as well as at least one brand name, if not several. And, you know, the system for naming these medications uh, is, you know, not not within our reach to to make it make logical sense. So really, we are left with the option of learning the names of every medication we come across over time. You know, it it seems like a big thing, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, it's just a extended learning curve and you're going to make mistakes and we're going to, you know, you're going to get corrected a lot. And that's OK. And ultimately, as long as you're getting the, the, the correct information across and the point across, if there's a slight alteration in how it's pronounced, you know, that's OK. And so I've I've even uh, seen a lot of pharmacists that may pronounce it differently than, than others, certain medication names. So it's just funny to think that even the people that learn specifically how to how to deal with medication that can't always seem to get it all on the same page. And so it's just shown me that, you know, as long as you're getting the point across that there may be some variations uh, in how it's said and that's OK. And if there's any confusion, you can always just uh, show it to the patient to ask them if they're taking it or print the medication list and and have them review it. So in specialties, you would think that we'd only need to learn the names of medications that are related to that department. However, 
this is not true because even in specialties, it is necessary to go over the entire medication list, uh, which can and will include medications for all types of conditions, not necessarily just for that specialty. And I think in general, they do cover some of the more common medication names in school, uh, but it really, it barely scratches the surface of what we come across. And so the advice I give to externs is to study the more common words as much as you can, but that a lot of the learning, again, will happen in the field after you graduate and get hired. You know, I advise them to do their best to pronounce the medications and obviously they'll get it wrong a lot of the time, but as time goes on, they will learn. And so, you know, it's not a perfect system, but it's it's so much to learn and it's very difficult. I've been doing this for a very long time and even still I come across medications I've never heard of or that are still very difficult to pronounce. Uh, particularly for me, a tough one is eye drops, uh, say Timolol or uh, Patadine or Patadine is, is uh, eye drops are, are something that gets me every time, even though I've seen it probably hundreds of times in my career. Uh, I've never worked for an ophthalmologist uh, and so, those things still get me every time, but I've learned to do it and say it, and I seem to be pronouncing it okay when the time comes. In a worst case scenario, if there's a name that truly puzzles you, as I mentioned, it, it is okay to show the patient and ask them if it's, a, if it's a current medication. I've actually worked places where it's common practice to print the medication list out and have the, meta, the patient review it either in the waiting room or, or once you get them to the room. Personally, I'm not a fan of doing this on a regular basis as it will definitely prolong your ability to learn them yourself and often is it's not actually reviewed by the patient in detail as they just assume the medications are the same as last time. Even if you ask them to initial the list, they usually will just still initial it. Not always, but it's, it's common to see that happen. I've seen it happen lots of times, uh, the few times that I've worked in clinics where where we had them do that. Even when you ask them verbally, a lot of times they'll just tell you that it's, it's not all the same and nothing has changed. So after the medication review, I generally go to the chief complaint, which is commonly included in the same template as the vitals. And so the chief complaint, this is a, an interesting one. It's kind of like a, a love-hate relationship uh, between the MA and the, and the reason for visit here. On one hand, it's so important as it's literally the reason the patient has come to the clinic that day. On the other hand, it's very often opens up a long explanation and conversation that may or may not be directly pertinent to what we as the medical assistant are doing with the patient in the room. And so I have, you know, there's a lot of different ways to handle it. Uh, you're gonna come across a multitude of things. There's no way to even begin to describe it, but you know, it's just something that you learn over time in the finesse. I have a few tips here for, for how to handle that as well. We'll get to you shortly. So I've seen a lot of different ways for MAs to document the chief complaint. Uh, I've seen it be something as extremely short and vague, such as follow-up or referral with no further explanation or something similar, like one word or two word thing that really doesn't go into too much detail. I've also seen them very long as when they, they will document almost verbatim what the patient is telling them. That usually ends up as a paragraph of information in the chief complaint box. Now I've, I've seen, I've noticed that this is something that is more or less taught in school to type what the, the patient tells you. I do get why that's taught, but I can tell you in, in, in practicality and in, in, in real life, that's just not gonna work because you some patients you'd be writing a novel. It's just not gonna happen. So, you know, initially, is it okay to start doing that if you're not sure what to write? To some extent, yes. 
but I can assure you over time, you'll you'll pare it down and, and figure out what needs to be in the chief complaint, if for nothing else, because the, the provider will likely tell you, hey, you know, you're, it, this is just a jumble of information. I don't have time for all this. Um, but, you know, whatever works for you. Some providers do prefer more information in the box as well. And so it's, it can be hard to figure out what information to put, at least when you're initially starting out. So throughout my career, I've seen providers have wildly different preferences when it comes to what they want and the reason for visit. Some providers feel that the more time the MA spends asking about the reason, the less time the provider will have in the room and it will cause them to get behind on their schedule. So in this case, usually a very short note is sufficient and the provider feels that they would rather get the details from the patient themselves. So that would roughly fall under the guidelines of like the referral or follow-up. I personally feel like a few more details, like referral for what specialty or what the concern is or a follow-up regarding what, even if it's just something as simple as medications, I feel like something a little bit further should be added. But you know what? It's ultimately what the provider prefers and you can chat with your provider about that. If you're not sure, I would say don't defer to too short or too long, somewhere in between. I can absolutely see why this could be preferred by the provider. And honestly, I can't imagine that any MA would mind doing this. It shortens the process, you know, allows you to put in just a word or two or a few words and be on your way. And so the other side of the spectrum are the providers who expect their MA to provide a brief summary of why the patient is there and some background. And actually, it, uh, it's not uncommon for the providers to want to even nowadays to do the uh, review of systems or a brief review of systems or if they're for if they're there for, say, a GI complaint to go over the GI you know, symptoms or, or whatever may be. And so sort of like a uh, almost almost like an HPI kind of deal. Um, and so it's, you know, usually there's templates for this, so it's, you know, it's, uh, it's easier to get along with, you know, some providers aren't big fans of that. Some are, it just kind of varies. Um, some EMRs don't have necessarily have a template for that. Um, but I do see it happening more and more. And so in a, in addition to this, some providers might even want the MA to pry a little bit about any other concerns that patients might have. So there's little chance of surprise in the room once they go in. I can tell you I've worked with providers who, you know, I, I, I actually make a point of of doing more of the talking and discussing in the room. I actually make a point of saying, hey, dear, is there any other concerns you're here for? I do it, number one, because the providers that I worked with wanted that and agreed with that. But also, you know, it's it's when the provider gets a bomb dropped in the room as far as like, hey, oh, by the way, I need this, you know, which happens fairly often and it's not it's not uncommon, but if you can prevent that, then, you know, if providers say they're about to wrap up and the patient drops something else on them, then they kind of look like they don't like to look like the bad guy if they have to walk out of the room and cut the visit short. And so what I do is I try to explain to them. And I, what I do is I don't tell them, you know, we can't talk about that. I just say, you know, my goal here is to give you reasonable expectations. And hopefully we can discuss all these topics today at this visit. It's not my place to to decide what isn't isn't talked about today. I just want to give you reasonable expectations that if another visit is necessary to continue to discuss these topics, then just please understand if that's the case, you know, if time is limited to some extent, but we're happy to do what we can today. And so usually most people uh, understand that and react to it fairly well, some not so much, but nonetheless better they react to me than to the provider when he's in the room. And so uh, you, there's other providers, honestly, who couldn't care less about what the MA puts in the chief complaint one way or the other. 
Um, as a side note to this, I have noticed that sometimes when a provider doesn't give feedback as either way as to their preference, it's possible they are unsure of how to mention it to their MA and they don't want to cause potential conflict. As the medical assistant, you should feel empowered to bring it up yourself to the provider and ask them what they would prefer. I can pretty much assure you they're going to appreciate you bringing it up no matter what their response. Maybe they don't care. Maybe they want a longer one. But the goal here is, is, you know, we want to accommodate them. We're there to assist them. Don't be afraid to bring it up. They'll appreciate that you asked. I can, I can assure you the fact that you took the time to ask them and to care what they, what they preferred. So when getting the chief complaint, it is also a great opportunity to use our previously discussed communication and customer service skills. And so often we are under pressure due to say time when doing this, and you'll get all kinds of answers and explanations from the patients when asking about their, their reasons for visit. It's important to not make the patient feel rushed and to ensure that you listen to them long enough to be sure of the actual reason that they are there that day, not just hearing them, but listening to them. I'm not going to tell you it's easy. It's definitely not. Okay. Uh, it's very easy to get in that monotone or mono, like, like just sort of in that, in that, in that uh, sort of mindset where you're just staring off or staring at them and you're hearing, but you're not listening. Uh, but it's, it's important to not do that. And so it takes a lot of patience and understanding on our part, as well as some investigation skills, really. And it's it's important to, to note here that the, the reason for the visit that was documented in the EMR when it was scheduled is usually not very accurate uh, for one reason or another. And you never want to just copy the initial scheduled complaint and just put it in, in, the, in, the, in the chief complaint box. In my opinion, it would be better just to put unknown so the provider is not misled. So, it, it, you know, it takes some skill to do this, uh, but, you know, it's something that we learn over time. Nobody expects you to be perfect. Even after 14 years, I still get caught up, although I like to think I'm pretty good at it. Uh, but the, the, you know, the most important thing is to make sure that the patient, you know, doesn't feel rushed and they feel respected uh, while also balancing our time. So some of the details we want to listen for uh, could include if there is pain of some sort. And so if there, if there is uh, the pain, was there a specific incident that might have caused it? Uh, if there wasn't, you could, we can often put NKI, which uh, no known incident or um, no, letting them know that hey, we are not, there, there wasn't anything specific happened that we think might have caused this. What level of pain that they're having? And so there's a whole bunch of different uh, pain scales, specific pain scales. The one that I most commonly see is the Wong Baker faces scale. So it's it's the one where it's got the different faces from basically zero to 10. Zero is no pain at all. And 10 is the worst pain of your life. That's important wording there because uh, that's going to vary wildly. It's extremely subjective on the, to the patient. Uh, but it gives them, you know, I'll give them even an idea of what that may be uh, and get their get their opinion. That is by definition a subjective data because they're just they're telling you what their pain is. It doesn't mean it's not important. It just means that there's really no way to quantify it for the most part. And, you know, what body part is involved? Which side is it left or right? How long has it been present? Is it constant or intermittent or is it a one time issue that hasn't happened again? You know, have you been treated for this condition before? And if so, where? 
you know do we need to request records or look into that further is there any paperwork involved that will need to either be shown to the provider or to be filled out this is a huge one i could do a whole nother episode just on paperwork uh, but i can tell you right now if there's paperwork get it ahead of time get it pre-filled out the best you can and make it so the provider just has to do their part and sign really for the most part uh it is very common for patients not to tell you about the paperwork unless you specifically ask for it. Uh, so you, I would be sure to do that. This is obviously not an exhausting list of details to listen for, but it does give the idea of what to look for and sort of when you're hearing them talk, the kind of things you want to keep an ear out for. Another component to this is to ask questions while also minimizing the amount of unnecessary time spent discussing this with them. So there is no simple answer to this reading and uh, excuse me, reading and studying conversational techniques in regards to this can be helpful. I don't have them here to tell you about. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that. I have sort of learned them over time. I don't know any formal lessons on them. I, I feel like I've kind of just naturally um, become decent at it. But there are things to read about and ways to do this uh, to get information from patients. Um, without, you know, without getting a very long-winded explanation or, or at least attempting to, to not get a long-winded explanation. But the main goal is to, is to get the info that we need while also respecting uh, the provider schedule as well as the patient's experience. It is, if it is absolutely necessary to interrupt the patient, always be sure to do so in a in a calm and empathetic tone while apologizing for doing so and reassuring them that what they have to say is important. We never wanna make the patient feel like we are trying to rush them or that they are wasting our time. If they do happen to express that they feel this way, we should stop what we are doing no matter how rushed we are and calmly and sincerely reassure them it's valuable information and we apologize for not letting them finish and advise them that you know we want the provider to come in and that really it's for the benefit of their visit to let the provider come in so they don't have to repeat this information. Very important, so the probation will not forget it if you feel, if you make them feel rushed, even if it was, well justified, say you were in a big hurry, you were running far behind. So take that time to uh, explain to them and accommodate them and apologize if necessary. Sometimes if the patient is continuing to explain to me about why they are there, I will continue listening to them while at the same time starting to take their pulse ox or blood pressure. A lot of the times the patient will get the cue that they need to stop talking uh, so you can take their blood pressure. Other times, they don't get that cue, and in those situations, I usually proceed with the blood pressure while they are talking. So yes, it can make it more difficult to hear and possibly falsely elevate the reading, but if the reading is high, then I will use that as a reason to kindly interrupt them and let them know I want to take it again uh, without them talking to see if I can get a more accurate read and apologize if necessary. So regarding the temperature, it's usually easier to get the temperature last, at, uh, at least if it's oral, uh, as they obviously have to stop talking completely. And once you're done, usually there's a minimal pause to wrap up the visit while you finish entering the vitals and let them know the doctor will be in shortly. And so note this is the time that I let them know if there's a wait, even if it's just a minor wait. Uh, I make sure to word it in a way that does not make any promises that the provider will be in quickly as we never know what exactly will happen. I usually word it in such as uh, the provider will be in as soon as they can or I'll let the provider know you're ready or something similar to that.
And if there is a wait that's longer than, say, I don't know, five, 10 minutes, I usually update them about every 10 minutes, communicate with them, offer them water, whatever we need to accommodate them. And so that's, if I'm leaving the room and it's appropriate, I'll offer them water even at that time. If I'm not sure if they can have water, say if they need like a H. pylori breath test, then I, I won't do so, at least without checking with the provider first. To, to back up a little bit, when it comes to taking vitals, uh, we've all been trained how to do it. And we have, if you've been a medical assistant for any period of time, you've probably taken vitals quite a few times. I will tell you that I was not originally properly educated on the ideal preferred way to take a blood pressure, at least that I recall, with the, the ideal way being patients sitting with their back straight and supported, their arm completely externally supported, and so they're not supporting it themselves, whether you're holding it or it's resting on something completely, as well as it being at heart level, nothing between the arm and the stethoscope, so no shirt on or sleeve on or jacket, of course, or anything like that. Feet flat on the floor, as well as ensuring the patient does not need to use the restroom at all, whether it's, you know, number one or number two. You know that uh, even if they don't feel like they need to uh sometimes you know it can it can absolutely do that because internally it's it's causing them uh, some minor internal stress that can affect the blood pressure and then letting them rest in that position for at least several minutes prior to taking the blood pressure now in practicality this is not really doable most of the time you know we live in the real world uh and i don't know about you guys but i for me i more or less have less than two minutes for the most part to get my patients roomed with some exceptions uh and so you know if somebody's there for a blood pressure follow-up specifically i might take a little bit more time but you know real life happens and we don't always have the time to do that and so the i the best option is to cover as many of these bases as possible so a downside to doing the blood pressure at the end of the visit is sometimes when discussing the reason for visit, the patient can become emotional. In my experience though, this is the lesser of the evils and is more manageable than taking a blood pressure soon after the patient is roomed and before they've had time to relax. If necessary, you can always retake the blood pressure after the visit or, you know, say, take it again if they were talking or whatnot before you leave. Pulse oximeter is pretty self-explanatory for the most part. Some devices are more accurate than others and some are capable of adapting to an infant finger. But to my knowledge, they all use the same technology to get the readings. They use an infrared light to read the blood flow. I have noticed that if there is a low reading, I will try it on several different fingers to see if it will get a higher reading, mainly because I have noticed that a low reading is commonly a result of insufficient blood flow, cold fingers, cold hands, whatever it may be. If the patient truly has a low oxygen level, then the reading should be consistent on multiple fingers. After multiple attempts, it shouldn't go, say, to 99. If it's been 95, if it truly is 95, it shouldn't go up. If anything, with better blood flow, it should stay the same or, or go down or be more accurate. So as for temperature, uh, generally speaking, an oral temperature is considered most accurate. Aside from a rectal temperature, of course, which is not used very often, even really in infants, unless there's a specific reason for it, usually axillary, the armpit is, is the preferred method, unless, of course, there's a reason for it or a reason to get a very uh, accurate temperature, which sometimes there is. Um, and so, but if they're just coming in, you know, I don't know about you guys, but most places I work, we get a temperature on everybody. And so, you know, doing a rectal tank on temp on somebody who's just coming in for, for whatever reason, then it may not be pertinent, it's not, not really appropriate or necessary. We have all probably seen ear or tympanic thermometers. Uh, there's temporal, either contact or non-contact thermometers, and oral can also be used as the axillary. 
And then of course we mentioned the rectal. Since COVID, I've noticed that non-contact temporal thermometers are the preferred method. I do completely understand why this is done. However, I personally don't think this, this method gives an accurate reading. I'm definitely not an expert on thermometers and I, I do not really have anything other than my own experience um, to assess this. But at least the ones that I have used have shown to be extremely unreliable and consistently low. So I've had several patients that have had low or normal readings with the non-contact thermometers, but have had notably high fevers once I retook it with an oral thermometer. At least one or two of those patients have come back to have COVID. And so because of that, I don't use those thermometers. I can't speak from anybody else, my company, or really even the actual accuracy of them. I can just tell you from my experience uh, that I don't use them. And I, I personally, I use them if I have to, but I would never actually trust that it's an accurate read for temperature. Although obviously, if, you know, when you're taking vitals on or temps on a lot of people, say patients coming into places, you don't want to use an oral temperature on every single person coming in. And for nothing else, they're not going to want that going from one mouth to the next, even though it's a clean cover. As far as vitals go, these are, these are most of them, although they're far from all inclusive. Uh, some of the vitals that might occur could be head circumference for small children. Um, in cardiology, and EKG can be a standard part of vitals for some patients. And I have no doubt there's a multitude of other readings that may be taken for different specialties that I'm just not familiar with, really. I mean, I've worked in GI. I worked really a, just a couple of days in cardiology. Uh, but other than that, I have basically no experience in anything else except maybe urgent care. And so I would be fascinated to know what other vitals might be taken in different in different specialties. I would love to hear from some of you listeners regarding the other vitals that you might take at your job or, or in a previous job that you work in, whether even if it's in primary care, maybe you do something a little different or you work in a specialty that, that does something kind of unique as part of the standard protocol. Uh, I'd love to learn. Educate me. You know, you can always leave a uh, you can always send an email next level medical assisting at outlook.com. Uh, you can. You can at me on Twitter at, at NLMA underscore official. Uh, and I believe you can also leave a voice a voice message on anchor.fm for me. And I'd be happy to, to hear that and reference it on air as well in a future episode. If something has come up or comes to light during the rooming process that you were not aware of prior to the patient coming and a, a setup is needed, now would be the time to set up for that, you know, after you're done doing the vitals. Once we are done, uh, providers and or the clinic you're at will likely have a preferred method of, of notifying the provider when a patient is ready and which patient is next. Using the flags is a common method, particularly the flags just outside the door. I can tell you that I am known uh, for not being a fan of the flags and if the provider doesn't have a preference, I would much prefer to not use the flags. Uh, this a lot of times can come as an annoying issue to my coworkers when I have to cover for them or they cover for me or vice versa. I much prefer the verbal communication method. Um, I'm not going to say which one is just better. It's just my preference. Um, if obviously the provider prefer to use the flags, I would use the flags. Uh, but if they don't, I would much rather not. 
part of my reason for that is that different flares can have different meanings at different clinics you work at. Plus, a lot of times they're not labeled, and I particularly am very bad at remembering what each leg is, uh, each flag is intended for. Uh, plus, it's it's pretty kind of vague because there's only a few flags, so I feel like it's not enough information. That's just my opinion on it. And so some providers or MA teams may use verbal communication, which is my preference. Uh, however, this does take a lot of attention to detail in case the provider is not available and you don't want to miss them when they come out of the room. Uh, and so it, it just, you got to pay attention to make sure when they come out, if they come out and go to another room, you got to make sure they know which room to go to next. If there's something you need to tell them prior to they go in the room, it's just important to pay attention. Uh, you really got to be more alert about it and, and just make sure you're communicating properly. Another method I've used in the past is sort of like a stuffed animal of some kind or stuffed toy or some other toy. However, due to COVID, this is generally not permitted or sanitary really anymore, even if they're able to be sanitized. You know, it's just bouncing from door to door. It's contaminating, it's taking germs. One more thing you gotta clean. It's just in general, not a good idea. And so I, I haven't used that in some time and I actually haven't seen them used for some time anywhere else I've worked, you know, for good reason. So some EMRs use a cue or a note in the computer that the providers can see that notifies when the patient is ready. I've seen this maybe at one of my jobs. It's possible that it's used a lot more other places, even with EMRs I've used. They may just, they may just not use that component at the clinics I've worked at. It, it's good, it really is, but I, I, in my experience, sometimes it can give a false sense of security to the MA that the, patient, that the provider knows the patient is ready and they may not very well have noticed it for whatever reason. They might be in the middle of documenting or dictating or whatever it is and they might not catch it. And so ultimately though, whatever method is used, is the MA's job to ensure the provider is aware of what is going on and when a patient is ready and which patient is next. So, you know, they're, we're busy. I totally understand that, but they're more busy. Okay. And it's our job that we're their assistant. It's our job to make sure they're on time going into the right room with the right patient and that they know when they're ready. Uh, this wraps up the general rooming process. I know depending on where you work and what type of clinic you work in, the actual process can vary, probably even by quite a bit. And I would love to hear what you, you listeners have to say about your experience. And thank you again so much for listening to Next Level Medical Assisting Podcast. And thank you for all that you do and that you will do for your patients. Next episode will likely be my last one for season one. I intend on starting season two in the next few months. I would absolutely appreciate it if you were willing to send me feedback on topics to discuss or your own experiences, either as students or in the field. Also, I would love to have a guest on at some point if anybody is interested. I've personally guest starred on a podcast myself prior to starting this one, and I was very nervous, but ultimately it pushed me to start this podcast since I enjoyed it so much. Uh, if anybody is interested, I guest starred on the podcast called All Things Medical Assisting that is hosted by Santino. Uh, the episode is called And My Guest Is. Uh, I, I would encourage you to go listen to it. And uh, I, I, I think it was, uh, it's just a good listen. It's had quite a few listeners, nothing spectacular as far as, uh, you know, information necessarily, but it was an enjoyable experience for me uh, and overall his podcast about medical assisting, but sort of takes a different approach. So it's a great podcast. And again, thank you very much for listening.